90% of all scientists that have ever been alive are alive today. That's a lot of information, but don't panic. It's not an exact science. Hey, Shannon, how are you? I'm uh, just trying to survive this heat. How about you? <laughs> about the same. It is, it is hot, but by the time this airs, I will probably be uh, halfway across the country back towards Pennsylvania. In I... fact, I will probably be editing it uh, in a hotel room because hopefully I'll have better Wi-Fi. Well, <laughs> I'm glad that you got to come back down here and experience what you've been missing the last several years. <laughs> Um, <laughs> yes. <laughs> I, I think it's it's pretty bad up north, too. Um, but yeah, that being said, I'm officially on vacation just for a week, which means I'm not doing anything but fun stuff like podcasting. Yeah, exactly. And <laughs> you said you've been playing like a lot of Pokemon Go. and <laughs> uh, I've been playing an awful lot of Pokemon Go. <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, I wish I could blame it completely on my seven-year-old, but anyone that knows me would know that that is a lie. I would be playing it anyway. <laughs> it's true. Yep, yep. It's absolutely true. Um, if anyone needs one, there's a skither that lives outside my house, so you should come to see that. <laughs> <laughs> Well, so I've been reading, uh, we've had a few limericks submitted, so that's great. Excellent. You should definitely keep that up. <laughs> um, I saw that one actually does rhyme with Nantucket, <laughs> despite Yeah, someone took warnings. that as a challenge, as <laughs> yes. you would imagine. <laughs> but it's totally clean and impressive. <laughs> yes. And I also got a piece of feedback uh, from Steve, who had written into us about the Nature app cutting off his access mm-hmm. uh, at midnight GMT. <laughs> and he said he's gone back to the app and they've made it more friendly for non or lap subscribers. So he said hopefully he helped nudge him along. Oh, that's excellent. Um, that's a really great feeling to think that maybe you had something to do with that. So way to go, Steve. Yeah. <laughs> So, yes, that's that's what we had for feedback, but keep sending that in. We love it. We have also haven't had an audio comment in a while. Ah, I'll, I'll, get, so, I'll get people on that then. <laughs> yeah, you just uh, use the voice recorder app on your phone and send something in to us. Excellent. Yeah, well, so this week I thought we could talk about uh, do an anniversary show of a relatively <laughs> historic event and something that we've talked about on the show before. Uh, right, exactly. So any... One that is a super space nerd, like we are, knows that we're obviously talking about the moon landing at Apollo 11. Absolutely. So this was July 20th, 1969. And it actually occurred about 4.18 in the afternoon Eastern time. Uh, So kind of mid to late afternoon. That's when the actual landing occurred. The moonwalk was sometime later. Yeah, like six hours or something, which had to be the longest wait of your life. Uh, yes, absolutely. You just landed on the moon, and yeah. now you have to prepare. And I think they actually had them rest even a little bit. Oh, <laughs> just from the excitement. I don't think that would have happened um, very <laughs> easily. Um, but the they were talking about, of course, is um, Buzz Aldrin, Michael Collins, and Neil Armstrong. So those are the astronauts in Apollo 11. And, you know, Buzz Aldrin and Neil Armstrong got to go out onto the moon, and Michael Collins was the pilot um, who stayed in the module during the space or during the moonwalks. Right, so he was in the command module in orbit the whole time, doing a lot of really important tasks, uh, coordinating things happening on the surface of the moon, and running. They had all kinds of cameras and other things that were collecting data to help us plan future moon missions as well. Right. Um, A funny side note here. We had to write about somebody in history that we wanted to meet in high school, and I wrote about Michael Collins. Really? (laughs) Yes. 
<laughs> I, I just, I sort of, you know, I, I was a big space nerd growing up. You know, I wanted to get into the astronaut program and all this stuff. And I just felt like he got the biggest raw deal ever, right? Like, <laughs> go almost to the moon. Watch your two buddies. See you later, guys, while he has to stay there. <laughs> and obviously, like you said, he's doing arguably the most important work. But it just seemed like a raw deal. <laughs> yeah. And, well, you know, it had to be a little bit creepy because you're in the command module by yourself 250,000 miles from home just hanging out <laughs> just hanging out yes and if something went wrong on the surface you would be trying to come back by yourself uh yes yes exactly which is terrifying um and anyone that is Reading along with us on Ignite, the book that we're doing for our book club with the Orbital Mechanics, um, we've actually included a link in here because obviously a lot of getting to the moon had to do with, you know, stuff we're not even going to talk about today in the summer short, but, you know, what different kinds of fuel they had to use, what was the rocket like, and all this stuff. And so we've included some links into that, and um, I felt like I understood it a lot better because I've been reading um, that book about the history of rocket fuel. Yeah, and also if you want the, the simplified version of the diagram that we'll link in, you can look at the Upgoer 5 from yes. XKCD. <laughs> yes, that is definitely the simplified version and arguably more entertaining. Yes. <laughs> but so I guess we'll start out. There's been some, there's been a lot of really interesting things that happened on this mission. Uh, a lot of things that could have ended the mission very badly. But when I was an intern at Johnson Space Center in Houston, I actually got to go into the control room and sit in the flight director's chair that, that is... was used for the Apollo missions. It was so incredible. I can't even imagine. I can't even imagine. I think I would have smiled for like a week after that. <laughs> uh, yes, you know, we, we took some photos and of course I, I wore like a skinny black tie and we made them black and white and a little grainy and ah. it looked like it was straight out of the 60s. Ah, ah, ah. Thanks, Instagram filters. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. <laughs> um, I, I guess that I feel like, you know, a lot of people, probably not as many as should, know that Apollo 11 was the first, um, you know, moonwalk. That's what Neil Armstrong did, but... Everyone knows what the stuff that happened on Apollo 13's mission, but just like you said, John, Apollo 11 wasn't just this smooth ride. It was really tense going back and reading some of these uh, transcripts of what was going on. Well, I think that's the key, too, is you have to read the transcripts, mm -hmm. because if you listen to the audio feed, and I'll try to find and link in, there's a really great uh, project that someone did where it highlights in the transcript what you're hearing in the audio feed in real time. Oh, nice. Yeah, it's really great. But the audio, they sound so cool, yeah. so calm, so collected. And you hear somebody just say 60 seconds as they're descending towards the surface. And that means 60 seconds until you're out of fuel. Yes. Yes. <laughs> Not 60 seconds till you land or anything like that. But you have 60 seconds in which to land or you die. Right. Because... They actually, where the computer was taking them, where the planned landing was, uh, turned out it was going to be a crater. So they had to do a lot of manual correction. Right. Um, Hence why what Michael Collins was doing, mapping the moon, was really important. Uh, right, exactly. And they say they were so close to the surface that they were actually kicking up a lot of dust, too. So they, you know, 
not flying blind, but close to. And, you know, they overshot their landing zone and they're shooting along much faster than they originally thought they would be. So they've done all this training, but I think that was something that happened that wasn't necessarily um, something they anticipated, obviously, or they would have trained for it. But can you imagine being there and then you're going so much faster than you thought you would be? That's terrifying. Well, yeah, because they didn't have detailed gravity surveys of the moon or any of this to know what any of these weird things that they're going to encounter are. Uh, and they also really had a relatively poor idea of what the surface properties of the moon were going to be. Right, exactly. Uh, so it, w- it would be pretty terrifying. Mm-hmm. Um, I read one article that described it as the moon's lumpy gravity. I thought that was a pretty good geoid uh, picture uh, yeah. in my head. <laughs> <laughs> so you should definitely go watch the landing video and hear the audio and maybe look at the transcript. Uh, also, I found an interesting statistic that when they launched on July 16th, the rocket and everything together weighed 100,000 plus change pounds. Oh, my gosh. The landed mass <laughs> was not quite 11,000 pounds. So it's literally an order of magnitude mass loss to get there. That is unbelievable. And this is just things to, you know, house the fuel and generate the thrust needed to get there. And get yes. most of the way back. <laughs> That's unbelievable. <laughs> yeah, so I mean, it's this incredible feat of engineering. Most powerful rocket uh, ever launched to date. Uh, Falcon yeah. Heavy might come after that. But it's just really incredible what they were able to do with the time scales and the technology that they had. Exactly. And you say, you know, with the technology that they had. Um, so one of the things that I didn't really know about until sort of reading this over <laughs> was, okay, so they've got this huge rocket all this weight, a lot of it fuel, and they get there. And as they're landing, they get a software error, right? Yeah, so the computer pops up a code, and the code is uh, basically saying that the computer's overloaded and is going to restart. (laughs) Yes. I mean, you know, you think you get mad when you're sitting there working on something at work and, you know, you forgot to click that button that says I'll update you later and everything starts to shut down and you get super mad, sometimes throwing stuff mad. But these guys are about to land on the moon and this thing comes up that says 1202 alarm. I've got too much info. I'm just going to turn off and restart. Like, what the heck? (laughs) Well, and so I heard Gene Kranz give a talk about this. Uh, again, when I was down at Johnson, and it was it was so cool because he said you had all of these people that were specialists, the best of the best, working on these systems, and there was so much trust between these people. That alarm came across somebody not in the main control room, but in the back room that was a specialist on the computer system in the lunar module or the LIM. Mm-hmm. They knew what it was because they'd actually just been looking at that alarm. It was a really obscure alarm yes. that they'd never trained for. Uh, Mm -hmm. And this person just came on the loop and said, we're go flight. And everybody implicitly trusted that voice. And they went instead of aborting. That's unbelievable. Um, That there's that kind of, that kind of trust, you know, I can, I can, I don't trust anybody like that. So (laughs) like, I can't (laughs) imagine, you know, when your computer is like, I'm going to shut down and they're like, nope, just keep going. Unreal. Yes. And (laughs) so... The, the way they did this, there's a whole book called Digital Apollo, which mm-hmm. I'll link in. If you're big into how that flight computer worked, you should read it. Uh, it very 
in depth describes how the Apollo guidance computer worked. Oh, and it's fascinating. I mean, they had to develop all this new technology, and the code was actually stored on what's called rope memory, where they would literally have these little magnetic cores, and people would oh. weave wire in and out of the cores for ones and zeros for the assembly code. Oh, that's crazy <laughs> and terrifying. Yeah, and so they they have their own flavor of assembly code for this because it's a completely new computer architecture because... It's a computer specially designed to go to the moon. Right, yeah. And uh, this code has recently been released on GitHub. Uh, I saw this. I haven't mastered GitHub even close to looking at it, but um, (laughs) I believe even in the link it says that the code looks like a 1960s time capsule. (laughs) It does, and there's jokes in it. The comments are really funny. Uh, So I picked out a few things that I really enjoyed. Uh, That's wonderful. The ignition routine... The subroutine name is Burn Baby Burn. Oh, my gosh. (laughs) Uh, This is something you don't necessarily want to see in spacecraft code. There are two assembly instructions, and the comment says, temporary, I hope, hope, hope. Oh, my God. Uh, (laughs) And then, you know, GitHub is what a lot of software people use to distribute and uh, contribute to other people's code repositories. Mm -hmm. So you can file issues and bugs. So some programmers that have senses of humor have gone on and started filing bug reports. Uh, oh, my gosh. The best bug report says, a customer has had a fairly serious problem with stirring the cryogenic tanks with a circuit fault present. <laughs> some of the other responses to this issue say, does it happen only with translunar coast or any moon coasting? It could be a problem with the moon. Just trying to narrow down the issue. Uh, this is wonderful. The best comment in that comment string was, this is fixed in Apollo 14. <laughs> oh, man, that's beautiful. <laughs> uh, it's it's so amazing to go through. And I, I put a link in as well. So a link to that and a link to someone explaining. He This guy says, I wrote 2,000 lines of the code that dealt with lunar breaking and descent. Mm-hmm. And he has this huge carried it around in it carried it in in a suitcase it's actually the only known remaining physical copy oh my gosh of the limb code wow. and opens it up and he's like oh yeah you know this this uh moved this in this register and this jumped to this part of the code and did this um there's like things circled in there and like what happened here he's like oh i don't know what that was and you know uh, <laughs> you see that it's really like any other large software project except it was life or death that's unbelievable. Yep, it certainly was. Um, speaking of the life or death, I thought this was also a funny. <laughs> I mean, you say it's funny, but uh, we talked about this when we were talking on our on the book club about you know a lot of these guys have this sort of black sense of humor, but you really do have to sort of dissipate. I think all the tension in some manner, and that's how most people do it. I think so. People might be appalled that there are jokes in this code, but. You know, it really is life or death. And so you have to deal with that sort of stress somehow. Um, And so speaking of another thing that went wrong, which is silly, but it did. As um, Neil Armstrong and Buzz Aldrin were trying to get out, they couldn't get out. They had an issue with evacuating their module of pressure or of oxygen. And so 
you had some pressure issues and couldn't get the door open, which is kind of funny anyway, right? You waited there six hours, <laughs> right? <laughs> and now you can't even get the door open. Um, but they're sitting there in their huge spacesuits, right? And as Neil Armstrong turns around, he actually broke off the ascent engine arming switch with his backpack. And <laughs> oops, <laughs> they were, yeah, exactly. <laughs> which, you know, didn't mean anything while they were there, but they kind of needed it later. And I love this. So what does he do to fix it when they're trying to leave? Is he unscrews his Fisher space pin and uses the tube of the space pin, sticks it on the little arm and uses that to actually arm the ascent engine when they were leaving. Without that pin, exactly. they may not have come back exactly. very easily. <laughs> so the big joke is like, you know, this Fisher space pen that got developed so you can ride upside down and in really hot or really cold temperatures and all this stuff. And so the big joke is, why don't you just use a pencil? Well, that's why. <laughs> that's why you don't just use a pencil. <laughs> it, it's really a great, uh, I think when the orbital mechanics talked about this, they called them space hacks. You know, it's a very <laughs> MacGyver move. <laughs> yeah. Yep. It was pretty wonderful. And so have you ever seen the movie, The Dish? I have not. So there is a movie, I will pull this up, uh, that it's a based on fact movie, I would say, okay. uh, but not strictly factually accurate, okay. about a deep space tracking station in Australia. Yes, so, so here it is. It came out in 2001. It was on Netflix for a while. I don't know if it still is. Oh. Uh, but the... Australians were actually going to be in the prime place to receive the video signal from the moon during the spacewalk. Okay. And on the way to the moon, uh, there were some issues, and I don't want to ruin the, the plot of the movie, but basically they lost track on the spacecraft at uh -huh. this particular station mm -hmm. and uh, had to regain it. And then when the uh, moonwalk was going to happen... It was actually uncertain whether we were going to have live pictures because of weather conditions at all the stations that could receive the signal from the moon at that time. Uh. It's it's one of those things where everything did come together in the end, mm. but it it was tricky. Right, right, exactly. And I don't I don't think most people know how tricky really. So this is worth. Um, I'll link in the show notes too. Space.com has sort of a really cool rundown of just the events and um, you don't realize till you start reading that and you read the transcripts and especially like you said, which is really cool. I thought about this when I was listening that everyone sounds so calm because they've trained for everything. They sound so calm and they yeah. shouldn't be. <laughs> no. <laughs> <laughs> and you know, when they land, it's just contact light, touchdown engine off. They go through a little checklist. Just, very, very <laughs> verbatim. It was, it was great. It shows the level of discipline and training that these folks right, went exactly. just like you said. As opposed to just being, we we're on the moon. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and, you know, I, there was another fun fact that the astronauts, they obviously could not get any kind of affordable life insurance policy. Yeah. So they signed a bunch of commemoratively stamped postcards before they left. And left them with their families. And the idea was if something happened to them, their families could sell these commemorative cards that they had signed. Oh, my god! To gosh. cover their expenses. That's unbelievable. Yeah. Wow. Hmm. Wow. Yeah, so there's, there's a lot of background story there. Mm -hmm. But this is a short, but I will say last night the moon 
was full. We're recording this on Thursday, so yesterday was the anniversary. Uh, the yes. moon was full, and it was a lot of fun to just look up at it and think about what has happened since you know 1969 and the fact that 47 years ago we landed there and we haven't gone back since the 70s. Yep. Yep, that is unbelievable. Um, not to keep plugging it, but we were playing Pokemon Go, and we looked up, and I said the same thing to my seven-year-old. You know, it was like in 1969 we were there. You know, and um, it was it was really cool. I agree. Yeah. Yep. Well, now for something totally different, as you would say. <laughs> Completely different. <laughs> did Did you go get the cowbell? Oh no, it's it's in my lab, and since I'm on vacation, I haven't gone back to that place that i work so (laughs) (laughs) next week the cowbell will be here (laughs) well it is fun paper friday yay (laughs) sans cowbell um man john this one's all you like (laughs) i think i understand why you picked it when i got to the end of it but it was it was rough It was, and I don't know how much I'm going to talk in detail about what's in the paper because that was pretty difficult to understand. Yep, sounds good. <laughs> but it, it is a, uh, a great platform, mm-hmm. uh, a soapbox, if you will, to stand great. on. Great, so that is why you picked it. Okay, I got yeah. it. <laughs> so uh, it, is, it is titled Cluster Failure, Why FMRI Inferences for Spatial Extent Have Inflated False Positive Rates by Eklund, Nichols, and Knutson. Yep, and so I thought, well, I know what fMRI is, but that's where it ends. <laughs> well, so maybe you should we should define that first, right? Right. Um, so it's exactly what it sounds like, right? So this is in PNAS, which we love to get stuff from because it's not something we normally read, um, <laughs> I feel like. So right. fMRI, functional magnetic resonance imaging, right? So these are these things that they stick you in in the hospital. Right, you go in the big donut, you hear the clunking sound, you can't have any metal. Right, yeah. Uh, yeah. And they use these because they can actually look at blood flow in different areas of the brain and have you look at things and see where your more blood flows in your brain, what's more stimulated. Uh, and they did, uh, these authors pulled a bunch of data from an open database and started looking at statistics of it, and they found something rather alarming. Uh, there's kind of a lot of something alarming in here, actually, from what I gathered. Yeah, so the the idea was that the false positive rate in an fMRI for an activation of some area of the brain mm-hmm. was about 5%. Uh, actually, that number turns out to be more like 70%. <laughs> Which seems unbelievable, because as they state in here, fMRI's technology uh, is 25 years old. And it's been used in over 40,000 published papers on PubMed. Yeah, that that's just published papers. Function. That's not even talking about its daily usage in hospitals. Right. To inform medical decisions. <laughs> now, here's, here's the kicker. It's because of a software error. Unbelievable. Yes. <laughs> that so... was discovered <laughs> during this research. Yes. So they wanted to see, they said, it's surprising that nobody has done these statistical tests on large data sets. Yeah. Uh, They ran into another problem, which was, oh, well, there are no large open data sets. Yeah. I knew that was the kicker when I got to that sentence. (laughs) And that's why you picked this. Um, Because yes, this should be, this goes into that whole reproducibility thing that we keep saying we're going to talk in depth about 
and we just keep glancing over is that they didn't, yeah, they couldn't get their hands on huge data sets to even test this. And it's like, this is a software bug that everyone, you know, this should have been found out ages ago. But they, they, right. l- they look at a bunch of the different softwares that are used to analyze this fMRI output, right? Yeah. And then they ran 500 people, which isn't a very large in, really. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, they split them into 25 groups and then intercompared all of these groups because they should all be healthy, normal people undergoing the same test. Right. Uh, and so that resulted in 3 million comparisons. And... Yeah, they, they saw there's significant bias towards false positive activation of certain areas of the brain uh, just due to the way the software calculated some parameters in a certain mode. Right. Uh-huh. And this could have been found a lot earlier if these data sets have been open. It's hard to test for strictly in software because we don't have a really good human brain model. So right. if we apply a false stimulus to a human brain model and see what the software spits back, uh, it's probably meaningless. Right. Exactly. Um, They said that this bug, you know, was in this one program, and it's been used for over 15 years. Yes. And (laughs) (laughs) so there have been, there are a lot of different ways to process this data, as they talk about in the paper, and that's where it kind of went above my head. Yeah. Uh, But they sampled several papers and said that uh, 40% did not report correcting for a lot of these comparison biases. This is unbelievable. Um, They sort of get on their own soapbox in the last couple of um, paragraphs, but even with my minimal understanding of this paper, this is a really big deal. I mean, it's probably a bigger deal than us talking about open data for, you know, geology. I mean, this is people's lives are at stake in this stuff and people aren't making their data available and that's you see where this is turning into a big conversation in the scientific community right and granted there are issues with making health data open because of hipaa that we don't have to deal with rocks don't have you know (laughs) privacy concerns (laughs) that is true uh which is nice for us yes but (laughs) This could, you know, they said it could invalidate some of the claims in some of these papers that we know about brain function. Uh, right, exactly, which, you know, that's how science works, right? You put stuff out there, it gets reviewed, you move forward working on those assumptions. And if your assumptions are crap, then guess what your new data is? Yeah, I, I can't imagine that publishing this paper made them incredibly popular. No, I can't imagine it either, but I hope that people really sort of listen anyway though i mean they make some very good points uh yeah and you know they said it's not possible to redo all of these studies and the data wasn't archived so you can't reanalyze it either right um and we talk about hip and stuff but this was something that was surprising because i don't know anything about you know medical stuff besides what we read on here um they say in here that you know we commend all authors to at least share their statistical results and ideally the full data there are stuff out there that don't share their statistical results. Yeah, that's kind of scary. <laughs> right. <laughs> I mean, you would think that you would have to have that published, but I guess you don't. I, I guess not. And if somebody knows more about medical publishing than we do, I'd yeah. love to hear what the, what the scoop is. Uh, yes, yes, because that was, that was rather shocking for me. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Hmm. 
Um, it's, it's really sort of eye-opening that, you know, this isn't just our problem, but it sounds like, well, it doesn't sound like, because I think we're just sort of with this group, but it seems like a lot of people are trying to push for more of this, you know, reproducibility and access to all this data so we can all hold each other accountable because, you know, when you're reviewing a paper, that doesn't mean you go and actually perform the experiments yourself, but it's nice to have someone there to do that to keep you honest. Yeah, exactly, because you know, I think we've said this on the show multiple times, but as Feynman said, uh, the goal of science is you know not to fool, and you're the easiest person to fool. Right, yep, exactly. So despite the fact that this was ridiculously hard to read, <laughs> um, it was actually quite interesting. <laughs> yes, and it, it goes back to all these things that we talk about, yep. open data, reproducibility, testing of scientific software, how it's mm-hmm. really important to test scientific software because wrong <laughs> results, you know, it's garbage in, garbage out when it comes to software. Yeah, uh, right, exactly. And, you know, 40,000 fMRI studies, you know, and how many of those had this 15-year-old bug in them? My guess is most of them, right? So It would seem so. Yeah, so. <laughs> yeah that, was, that was sort of scary. Um, <laughs> that was a scary paper. Yeah, and I'll also link in uh, last year's color map talk where they talk about jet being used to visualize artery <laughs> blockages and how that could possibly have led to a much higher rate of uh, misinterpretations of data. Yeah, unbelievable. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So... Uh, <laughs> Maybe we didn't understand how our brains processed the jet color scheme because the fMRI results were wrong. <laughs> You know, if, if you plot this fMRI data in JET, I bet it looks a lot better. <laughs> so true. So true. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> well, before we close out, we just have a reminder for you. Uh, that's right. Um, thanks to those of you who have sent in limericks. Um, I'm excited that we've already had people send them in. <laughs> um, but just a reminder, get those to us by August 19th. And if you didn't hear last week, we're running a listener limerick contest not to be confused with the listener limerick challenge and we want something geosciencey in the form of a limerick so you can get um some of chris taylor's awesome science creations yes and it and it was totally to be confused with the listener limerick challenge it is a shameless <laughs> ripoff of the so wait true. wait don't tell me game except <laughs> you have to write the entire limerick not just fill in a blank exactly so, any geology-themed limerick will do, but please keep them clean because we do have to air them. Yes. And yes, it will not be just us judging them. So writing about earthquakes will not get you extra points with me because <laughs> we have somebody that understands English, unlike us sometimes. So true. <laughs> and it, it's uh, it's been a lot of fun to read these. So definitely keep them rolling in. I'm really looking forward to sharing some of these with Absolutely. you on air. And when you do send yours in, if... You're, you would like to let us use your name when we read it? Uh, just say that so we know that we can we can do so without offending you. <laughs> and as always, help us pronounce your name too, because that will be offensive when we inevitably mispronounce it. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> but so, Shannon, how can they send those in to us? Well, you can send those limericks in to show at don'tpanicgeocast.com. Feel free to also send in your limerick as an audio comment as well. Um, you Ooh, can always yeah. check us out on the web at don'tpanicgeocast.com. We're on Twitter at don'tpanicgeo. John is at geo underscore Lehman, and I am at Shannon Doolin. And until next week, remember, don't panic. It's not an exact science.
any opinions, findings, conclusions, or recommendations expressed are solely ours and do not necessarily reflect the views of our employers or funding agencies.